Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We've got to go to the Dartmouth bubble. To speak to David Blanchflower, of course, professor of economics at Dartmouth at college, his experience at the Bank of England and a student and a doubter of a fully employed United Kingdom, a fully employed America as well. There he was, David Blanchflower, John Major at 79 years old, coming down the aisle at Westminster Abbey for the Queen's funeral. And I've always adored the straight talking Norman Lamont, now 80 years old. In 1992, I will editorialize, they did not hide. Where is Liz Truss? No idea. We've no idea where Liz Truss is. We've no idea where the Chancellor is. Tory MPs are hiding, and every news organization is trying to get ministers to come on and talk about the chaos that's reigning. So the fact that they're hiding is a really a really bad thing. And today's a big anniversary as well, not just 1972, but 28th of September 1976 was when Dennis Healy went to Heathrow Airport and the markets collapsed so much he had to come back to Downing Street, go to the IMF. And the IMF has intervened um, in the last 24 hours saying, you know, you've got to reverse these policies. So we're seeing chaos in the markets. But numbers of us warned, I wrote a whole series of columns warning that this was coming uh, a month ago saying, you know, you, the, the problem is the markets will actually prevent amateurs doing stupid things. They haven't prevented it, but now we're having to see right. these organizations that intervene, the Bank of England, but we, we are now in chaos. Danny, the students at Dartmouth that want to get a quality C with you are forced at gunpoint to read the appendix of the Green Book of the IMF, their financial stability book. Explain for our radio and television audience worldwide what the Bank of England does to study financial stability, including the stunning headline an hour ago that they're worried about collateral calls in the gilt market. Explain that mechanism at Threadneedle Street. Well, I mean, it's, it's in, a, in a sense, the story that I know, the, the book was thrown out last week. Um, well, so what we saw was a statement by the governor of the Bank of England, 
who does not sit. I'm sorry, I have to take this, take it away. Um, this, this, this That's okay. That was just the prime minister. Don't worry about it's it. A, it's a, it was probably yeah. I've had so many phone calls. Um, so <laughs> the, state, the statement of the governor of the Bank of England, which caused markets to crash again. The MPC doesn't. He doesn't set monetary policy. The Bank of England actually, and the MPC actually does. Right. So what we saw today, I mean, it's in a sense I can't answer your question, Tom, because today what we saw was a monetary intervention that presumably the Monetary Policy Committee should have done, but the statement says this was not a meeting of the MPC, this was financial policy meeting. Uh, I, I really don't understand. I mean, in a sense, the book says... The job of this, I mean, in a, I remember going to the to, to the MPC and I was told monetary policy is meant to be boring. Monetary policy is meant to calm nerves. In some sense, the intervention today was about that. It well, was about trying to calm nerves at the top end of the, uh, 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 in, the in the long-term yield market. But, but I mean, we, we, we saw that they've also said, I don't know quite how the FBC said it, that the Bank of England is not going to do quantitative tightening this week. So the answer is... The book says calm nerves be, be stable, and it says the same thing to the to the Treasury. But none of that has happened. So I'm afraid the answer to your question is what that all of that was probably true a week ago. But today we, we, we're seeing, you know, the economics of pandemonium. The economics of pandemonium. I like that. Danny, if you are on the Bank of England committee right now, what would you opt to do? Well, you asked me a question last week and you said to me, would you ever vote for a rate rise? And I sort of said, well, of course. But last week I thought that wasn't the right thing to do. I actually think that I would have banged on the governor's door today and I would have said we have to have a monetary policy committee meeting. And basically we probably have to raise rates. We have to raise rates by 100 basis points. We have to stabilize the economy. Somebody somehow has to step in there and be the adult in the room. So I think that the bank has to, you know, this is going to cause all kinds of crises, but somebody somewhere has to calm nerves. So I would literally be calling a meeting of the MPC. Why yeah. we haven't had one, I have no idea, right? So these decisions were made today. How come, I mean, in a sense, the suspicion, if I was on the MPC, I would have had the suspicion that the statement issued by the governor of the Bank of England on Monday was written by the Treasury, well, that would have been that would have been a major issue to me. So, and what we've been seeing is that the, tr the the chancellor has been meeting twice a week with the governor. So the whole structure that Tom talked about is under threat. If you're an MPC member, you say, "Well, I want to sit here and talk about this." You could certainly persuade me to vote for a hundred basis point rise. But you know, Lisa asked me last week what <laughs> I ever I said. I said, "Of course I would," but I would. But it's you know, a week's a long time in the economics of pandemonium. Yeah, certainly uh, in this very moment, we just have about a minute. But your perspective going forward of the potential for some sort of politicization of this Bank of England at a time when, if they were to raise by a hundred basis points, it could really torpedo household balance sheets with mortgages that are tied uh, to that rate. Well, absolutely, Lisa. And I think, in a sense, the big story is over the last two days, we've seen all the all the mortgage lenders in the UK basically backing off. We've taken out their products in the markets because they can't price mortgages because of the chaos. So if you're in a position where you as a chancellor have actually ended up closing markets, uh, I, I don't know, somehow or yeah. other, calming has to come. But there is going to be, a, and the rise in house price, the rise in interest rate is going to kill the housing market off. The UK was probably already in recession. It's been driven into recession by this utterly incompetent set of moves by the Chancellor. And I don't know what he can do. I'm not sure I know anything that he right. can do. 
Right. Uh, it's not clear to me. I mean, if he resigned, what are they going yeah. to do? I, I don't know Danny, what he can do. Danny, we didn't have you on to talk about the Bank of England. How are you going to do down in Florida with a hurricane? Are you going to lose all your great fishing spots? My house is sitting on Sanibel, and I just heard as you came on here, the hurricane has moved and is heading right at my house. So that's not good. I'm well, so, so sorry. Yeah, we, it does not look good. It's headed right at us. We've heard and from so David. The island has been. Yeah. The islands had mandatory um, evacuation. Yeah. Um, we we. This is not good for us. We have heard this from David Kotak and others as well in Florida. David Blanchflower, hope that you do well in Florida, and thank you always for perspective from Dartmouth uh, College as well. We get very lucky here with Katrina Dudley. She was previously scheduled to talk about Tottenham Spurs, but instead we will talk to her about her true expertise in something I'm as dumb as wood on. John Farrell, save me here with Katrina Dudley of Franklin Mutual on the nuances of the guilt market. I, I, I just, John, I, I'm, I just, I'm clueless. Well, we can start here. Katrina, fantastic to have you with us. Katrina Dudley there of Franklin Mutual Advisors. Katrina, walk us through the unique character, the unique profile of the guilt market and the required need of this, say, Bank of England to respond to what you think it needs to respond to. Look, I'm not sure that they actually need to respond to anything here. I mean, they're trying to stabilise a market, but I grew up in an environment where we were told that markets were efficient. And so I understand it's only temporary, but I'm not sure that the the BOE is doing the right thing. Um, People are now talking about whether or not this pushes off another rate decision. But let's go back and think about what happened last week when the BOE made that rate decision. There wasn't even consensus within the governors. Um, You had five of them for 50, but you actually had three for 75 and then one lonely person at 25. So even within the Bank of England, there's not a lot of consensus. And I'm kind of curious whether or not that lack of consensus also um, you know, is, is, is part of the, the issue why this statement is for temporary um, intervention. And it really doesn't seem to have a lot of support. Katrina, you said you don't know that this was necessary. And we've heard from a host of U.S. policymakers that say they do not see disorderly markets. Volatility, yes. Disorderly, no. What is that distinction when you look around the world to understand disorderly policymakers need to step in versus a logical response to policy? Look, volatility just is caused by movements in price. So, you know, the price goes up, the price goes down, and the price is always responding to news. So we've had a lot of news. We've had a lot of news out of various central banks, not just the BOE. So that's causing the volatility. When we have disorderly markets, you're talking about buyer strikes in, in particular. So no one coming in. And I don't think you've heard any of that out of the, the English markets. I think what you're seeing is people are going in and acting rationally. And when people are acting rationally, I don't think you need to have the central bank come in and intervene. And my fear is that through this intervention, I think that the term is kind of quantitative conundrum because we don't really know what they're trying oh, to do no, here. No, no, it's not. We have to we have a surveillance correction, folks. It's not quantitative conundrum. John, help me here. What is it? We're calling it quantitative confusion. It's quantitative confusion. <laughs> there it, the there it is. The Chancellor will meet today with Collective Wall Street. I wish Sir John Templeton was there, of course, with the Franklin uh, Templeton funds. Uh, that was many uh, years ago. What should Wall Street listen to from a Chancellor beleaguered? 
I think what you're looking for is long-term intentions. That's what we want. That's what we really- Like a week, a month? Oh no, gosh, long-term in a week, a month is, is not what we're talking about. We're talking about, we'd like to understand what's gonna happen over the course of the next year. Um, and that's where the Fed dot plots have been very instrumental in giving stability. You don't necessarily need to agree with what the central bank is doing, but if you understand the direction of travel, as an investor, you can position yourself and you can do the right things knowing where we're heading. And I think that that's what people are looking for. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that you can distinguish that from the BOE where we're not quite sure where they're going. Exante Data's Jens Nordvik joined us about an hour ago. He just tweeted out the solution to one problem creates another problem. <laughs> They've stepped into the bond market and sterling's weaker, Katrina, by 1.7% of 105.53. Do you think by addressing the one problem in the gilt market, they consider it one. Do you think they're creating another problem in the FX market? Look, I think you're, you're, you're seeing that weakness in the, in the gilt market. I think there's two aspects here. First of all, people are thinking that the rate decision in the BOE, you know, that they actually may, you know, they, they're going to delay that given what they're talking about. The second thing I think is we were talking about, you need to understand the importance of controlling inflation in the UK because a lot of the UK debt is inflation linked. And that's something that's very different to any other market around the world. So the BOE really needs to keep an, a hawkish eye on inflation and in controlling inflation. And it's not just in order to generate price stability, it's actually also to control their debt costs. Well said. Fantastic to have you with us, Katrina. Thank you. Katrina Dudley there of Franklin Mutual Advisors. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Right now joining is Alan Ruskin. This is an honor, owning the court at Royal Bank of Scotland for decades and chief international strategist for David Folkert's Landau at Deutsche Bank. Alan, what I love about you is you can write a research note and six hours later you were wrong. You said in your research note yesterday afternoon that you thought, well, let the FX panic pass and then act. They didn't read your note. What would, where would we be now if the Bank of England hadn't acted this morning? 
Well, I think we'd probably be in a better place, Tom. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty critical with the, you know, about the actions that we've just seen here. Um, most obviously, this is negative for sterling to the extent that uh, the Bank of England is effectively uh, adding more liquidity into the system. They are lowering nominal rates. If anything, they are lifting up price expectations, which means real rates are getting a, a double whammy, as it were. And the pound is under additional pressure, which then puts them under additional pressure. Um, and you know, maybe they would like to see a situation where um, you know they it, it could see yields coming down in general. But if anything, this places more pressure on them at the front end of the curve. November third, next scheduled meeting, Alan. How big is that hike going to be? <laughs> um, well, when I last looked, and that was before this latest actions, 150 basis points was effectively priced in. So the market is really pushing them into a corner to do something huge. Uh, and without them acting in that way, effectively, the pound's going to go down further. So, um, you know, it, it, it remains to be seen how much will be needed on the day itself. There's obviously a lot of water that's going to flow under this bridge uh, before then. But I would suggest that, uh, you know, at least 100 basis points is going to be needed at that point. Alan, can they do anything about what's happening with pound sterling? The forces worldwide right now are incredibly powerful. The Fed hiking cycle, the dollar dominance off the back of it. Can they actually do anything to fight this? I mean, it's a great point, John. I mean, you know, it's a question of how much should they fight this? Uh, you know, one of the big problems the UK has is that its balance of payments uh, is in a seriously negative condition as far as the pound's concerned. Uh, the current account is one, you know, the deficit is one of the largest out there. The narrow basic balance, you know, when I last looked in terms of the last 12 months was amongst the worst, really, of 45 countries that I track. So the financing needs are huge. And I think the issue is just, uh, you know, what is the appropriate policy mix to uh, stem the tide, as it were? And I think the Bank of England's been back to some extent into a corner by unorthodox fiscal policies as well. But Ellen, I guess another way of asking the same question is, how much is this a dollar story and not really a pound story, not really a euro story, not really a yen story? Or I guess, yeah, yeah, I think, you know, obviously one should focus on uh, euro sterling probably as the metric that tells you just uh, how much of this is a sterling story. And by that account, you say, well, this, you know, this shouldn't uh, really uh, count as a, any sort of crisis per se. If you look at sterling on a trade weighted basis, on a real effective basis, it's not all that weak. So, uh, you know, don't respond in a sense. So, you know, I have a little bit of sympathy for the idea that the dollar and the, you know, is really the dominant story behind a lot of what's going on here. When does the strong dollar in and of itself, Alan, create havoc for the rest of the world economy that rebounds back to the U.S.? At what point do we see, I don't want to say a global recession, but something that looks like that because of the strong dollar? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so far the disruptions have been quite limited, but both in terms of what we're seeing globally and the sort of feedback loops back to, you know, U.S. Uh, risk appetite uh, metrics. So, you know, I think some people would say markets are a little bit broken because the Japanese are having to intervene. You know, I think you could say there's a yen story there and there's a BOJ divergence story that's dominant. Um the UK balance of payment story is unique. So, so far, I think we, sh we shouldn't, uh, you know, cry wolf too loudly. I don't think that's warranted. Alan, who's next to blink? 
The ECB's Holzman is talking up another 75 basis point hike. He spoke to our colleague and good friend of this programme, Maria Tadeo, earlier this she's morning. A friend of ours? A good friend of ours, Tom. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm not sure whether she's a good friend of yours. Yeah, yeah. Good friend of ours. Hmm. Alan, who's next to blink? Well, look, I think everyone is uh, seen as tightening uh, substantially uh, in terms of the G10 world. Uh, for this year at least. I think the, the blinking is probably going to start in 2023 when the U.S. Fed cycle you know, essentially comes to an end. At that point in time, you presume the global economy will, will be in worse shape uh, in general growth nationally for most economies will be uh, you know, that much more uh, in, in a much more serious downturn. And that point, I think, is going to be this real challenge where growth is very weak and inflation is still at much higher levels than targets suggest is warranted or desired. And at, at that point, I think policy is going to get into you know, uh, a, a much more, um, much more uh, tangled and much more confused sort of state. Alan Ruskin at Deutsche Bank. Alan, thank you. Alan, you're just one of the best and it's great to catch up with you, sir. As always. Right now, with a real view, uh, real world view, I should say, Sarah Malik joins us, Chief Investment Officer at Naveen. Sarah, do you, uh, do you ignore this within conventional institutional money? How do you sift in the tumult of the last three days? I think as long as the dollar and yields continue to move upward, investors need to brace themselves for more pain. Now, there's a few things on the horizon that might at least give us some stability here, and that's earnings and some cracks that we're seeing in inflation and also watching technicals. Unfortunately, we seem to be breaking through the June lows, which means we probably hit 34, 3,500 on the S&P 500. But earnings, we're seeing consensus start to decline a bit, and earnings generally don't crack until PMIs. Uh, go into contractionary territory. So I think actually Q3 earnings could be okay, give investors a bit of a short-term sigh of relief. And then also inflation still remains very hot, but we are seeing some moderation in rents, which is a big piece of core inflation. So you might at least start to see a plateau in inflation, which I think, again, at this point, that could be a positive for investors. Short-term bounce, but again, some stabilization for the markets would be a good thing. So the pushback we get against the earnings bears is that we live in a nominal world and nominal growth has been phenomenal because inflation is so high. And how can you push back against earnings in that environment? Sarah, you can if you get focused on, on margins, on costs. What do margins look like going into year end? I agree. Margins are a real issue for, for earnings because they're basically at peak levels. And with the cost inputs coming in, only those companies with pricing power will be able to maintain or expand margins. Also, the dollar's a headwind for earnings. And some of these signs of demand destruction are eventually going to hit earnings. The question is, what's the timing of that? Likely not the third quarter, but it is to come similar to the employment market. When does that crack? probably sometime early 2023, and that's when you hit your recession. So I don't think we can just hang on to the positive earnings of the third quarter, but given where the market is right now in terms of valuations, that it might at least just help us stabilize because they should come in all right for this quarter. Sarah, as an investor, when do market directions, market momentum, when does that overcome some of these fundamental considerations like margins and earnings and how quickly this bleeds out into the economy? I think when you get into these periods of extreme stress, like we're seeing now, it's somewhat of an unwind given what's going on outside of the U.S. and also the continued pain from higher yields, which makes equities let us less attractive. We do turn somewhat to technicals to see, can the market hold some of its lows and moving averages? The issue, of course, is that it's not really holding those. And I think until we can technically get to a more stable level, markets are going to just keep declining due to these uh, higher yields, 
um, you know, higher inflation numbers and, and fears over you know when is the next shoe to drop? Is it going to be in the UK? Is it going to be in Russia and Ukraine? Is some of these areas that just keep piling on to the negative narrative happening? Sounds like people are hiding under their beds with a whole lot of cash, just sort of sitting there waiting for it to pass. Are you? Is that what's going on, or is there something else that you're kind of figuring out how to play in here? I mean, I, I get the reason, you know, cash and, and yields are actually quite attractive, and that is a headwind for equity. So equities are challenging, but we're finding areas that are attractive, such as dividend growers. They actually look cheap versus some of the typical bond proxies that look expensive to us right now. They can provide you income and, and uh, protect you against some volatility. We like fixed income here. High yield actually is offering very strong returns in the high single digits. It's much higher quality than it was in the past. And then look for asset classes that actually can benefit from higher inflation, such as farmland, private real estate, where CPI right. escalators are written into some of their contracts. Let's go to core competencies, Sarah. Tell me what municipal bonds are doing at Nuveen. You guys own that franchise. Are, are tax-free bonds a place to be? I think that's another area with strong fundamentals that's been hit with outflows and also a lot of the negative sentiment that's hitting many asset classes. But it's similar to high yield on taxable fix. Strong returns for municipal bonds. Municipalities are very, are, have very healthy coffers right now. So municipal bonds is another area that we think is quite attractive. It's where you can get more bang for your buck. So a little bit less risk, lower correlation to other asset classes, but good returns to help you wait through a lot of this pain. Sarah, how many times have you been told that Apple iPhone demand is faltering? That's the reporting from like us this morning. It's interesting because Apple is a post-COVID story. We've been waiting a long time for that normalization after the extremely strong demand we saw for all of their products during COVID. And that unwind hasn't happened. So it is interesting to see it finally start to catch up to Apple. Not surprising. I think all of these issues for these companies that had very strong, unusual demand during COVID are eventually going to have to normalize. That process could be painful even for Apple. Sarah Manick. Thank you. Wonderful to catch up of Nuvi. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.